welcome to the R. Jackson Home Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Pepper Pratt, the Executive Director of Youth Town. Uh, Dr. Pepper, thank you for, for coming. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Um, so we actually met many years ago mm-hmm. when we were both living different lives. Yeah. Uh, I was a student at Union, and you were teaching the youth ministry courses. I was. And by my, how far we've both come. I know. That's, <laughs> I'm not sure how long ago that was. Probably seven or eight years ago. Yeah, just about. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so let's get a little bit of backstory on you because you haven't been in the nonprofit world. I mean, I guess it's probably been five years now, maybe. Mm, yes, and almost exactly. So, so, but there was a lot before that. So, where where are you from? Give us the background, Pepper. Well, I grew up in Henderson and uh, was uh, went from there to University of Memphis, which was Memphis State University back then. And uh, then on to uh, Southern Seminary, and then back to, well, actually graduated from Union, and then on to Southern Seminary, and uh, back to University of Memphis for another degree, and uh, then another degree. And, so you got lots of degrees. Yeah, and then, uh, but started off as a youth pastor in churches, and um, really uh, quickly uh, enrolled in, in graduate program in counseling, and uh, went to um, Memphis for that, but uh, worked at uh, an alcohol and drug facility here in Jackson that uh, closed back in the early 90s, but um, was in and out of uh, some of that kind of work with alcohol and drug treatment facilities uh, around the time of managed care when, when many of them were closing, so that there's a lot of changes when I first got into the field, mm-hmm. and then uh, was uh, served as a pastor and bivocationally was a counselor in private practice and uh, was actually at Youth Town back in the late 90s, early 2000s okay. as the program director and, uh, and then spent about 12 years in private practice before going back. Gotcha. So, so when I met you, all I knew about was the private practice and the mm-hmm. pastor stuff. So I, when, I, when I initially saw the announcement that you went to Youth Town, I was like, well, that seems like a little bit of a jump, but that makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah. So what, um, you, know, you have all these degrees. What led you to spending time in the alcohol and drug rehab? Type of area. Oh, probably crazy families. I mean, just my own crazy family. Mm-hmm. Uh, grew up in. Uh, my dad died when I was nine. Mom remarried a guy that was an alcoholic, and uh, that was a, a tumultuous adolescence. So, you know, leaning toward working with kids came fairly naturally because I had somebody that intervened in my life and made a lot of difference. And uh, you know, over over time, you you heal up and you want to give back. So, I think that's kind of what got that started. Yeah. And, and so, you know, were you, do you feel like you picked up additional skills during your private practice times that, like, helped you set up for this, or is it just a completely different animal? Uh, it, it certainly doesn't hurt, and I think, you know, having a clinical background is, is good when you're an executive director, uh, but the job is not a clinical job, mm-hmm. so it's, it's really more of a job in business as, yeah. as a manager and leader, and, uh, and that, that's an itch that I enjoy having scratched, too, but... Um, you know, the person that before, was there before me was uh, not a clinical person, and he did a tremendous job uh, before me. And uh, but it, it certainly helps that that's my background. Yeah. Well, and and, and that was a question I want to ask you because you you see some people leave the the practitioner side of things and move into an administrative role, mm-hmm. and I've seen people regret that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, you mentioned itches being scratched. Are you still are you able to 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 
indulge, which is not the right word, but indulge no, the clinical side of things still? Yeah. Or do you miss that? Well, I mean, it's it's a, a blessing and a curse, I guess, to, to, to enjoy both of those. But like right now, we, we have a therapist that's out at our girls' program, so... Um, I'm filling in, okay. <laughs> and so I have. In addition to being the executive director of a, you know, of a five million dollar a year company, budget wise, now I have a six uh, six on my caseload of adolescent girls, uh, which is never a dull moment. Yeah. But I, but that's the part that I'm the most at home mm-hmm. with, and it's something that I'm. I, I know that I can contribute to. Um, but it's also a job that needs to be done by somebody, and I just happen to be somebody that can do that. So, uh, but that, and I still have a small private practice, and okay. I'm still doing a little bit of, of that, and trying not to expand that, but yeah. just take care of a few folks. And and I can't. That's one of those things that I can't not do. I think we all have a a press point of of things that do, we feel gifted in, and we feel like we can help people. Uh, in and we enjoy, and that's one of those things for me that I don't ever see myself not doing that. Yeah. Well, and, and then, so t- tell us a little bit about your family. Yeah, so I've got two boys. I've got um, uh, been married a little over 30 years, and uh, two young men that are uh, doing quite well. I've got one that's in Nashville, and he works for a tech company in Nashville in sales. And uh, I have another son that's a second-year PhD student in Alabama uh, okay. in, in marketing, of all things. All right. So, yeah. Well, that's really cool. And what, is, what does Pepper do for fun? Are you still riding bikes? Still riding bikes, yeah. Well, not no. Actually, I took the motor off, so oh. I'm, I'm riding bicycles. I sold my Harley okay. and and uh, and and have a bicycle that I, I ride with some friends yeah. and and uh, you know doing quite a bit of that and and a little bit of fitness stuff every now and then. And yeah. Do you ride? Because Youth Town's a pretty good uh, jaunt. Well, I, see, I live in Three Way and I and I commute to Pinson every day to work, but I don't ride a bicycle. <laughs> okay. So I take a tour of the county every day, but no, I just. Uh, when when the weather gets nice like it is right now, yeah. that's something that I'm able to get out and enjoy doing with, usually with some friends, and uh, you know get get a good ride in a couple of times a week, and that's fun. Okay, well Pepper, let's take a quick break, and we'll okay. come back and we'll talk about Youth Town. All right. And uh, and and uh, we'll talk more about how you got there um, in particular. So so between the Tennessee and Mississippi rivers, this is our Jackson. Jackson home and I'm here this week with Dr. Pepper Pratt who's the executive director of Youth Town. So so you're in private practice. Uh, were you still teaching at the time or Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, I'd been teaching almost 10 years uh, when I went to Youth Town. Yeah. So what was that, you know, what was the what was it about that offer that you're like, okay, I'm going to I'm going to make this sh- shift and go back there. Well, it, you know, the 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 blessing and the curse of of private practice is that you know, you do a lot of it. I mean, mm-hmm. to earn a living, but also to help the people that that have a need. And if that is all you do, then it really can become monotonous. And I'm somebody that just, I, I enjoy variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming out of a church leadership background, the, there's a leadership part that I've always just really enjoyed and felt like I, I could, you know, be helpful in. Yeah. So even when I was in private practice, a part of teaching was kind of exercising some of those other uh, passions and gifts. And, you know, I served on the board of a school, I you know, coached soccer, I did a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And um, just kind of coming up in the middle of life and saying, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? Yeah. And 
uh, I, I really enjoyed my time at Youth Town before, but I didn't. When I began to have that restlessness, I didn't even know that that was going to be a possibility. So I put my resume out and some feelers out just with some other people, and I gone and interviewed for another job in Memphis that was going to be a chief clinical officer at a, at a hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, had contacted my references on the way back, and Nick Pappas was one of those, and he was the executive director there and had been there for 21 years. And uh, he said, mm, we probably need to talk uh, <laughs> because I'm stepping down and retiring, and uh, do you mind if I give your name to, uh, to the board? And uh, he did, and oh, here we are. There we are. Uh, well, that, you know, it's nice to have friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, what, uh, so what does Youth Town do? Because that name... You know, that name doesn't really mm-hmm. say, it could be like a, a place where you send kids to play for an afternoon or like, you know, so what, help us understand what Youth Town is. Well, it's, it's changed, but the heart of what we do is not changed. So Youth Town started in 1962. Uh, there was a group of families that lived out south and, you know, some of our Jackson folks would recognize uh, the names of Watlington and Kimes and uh, Hubert Williams and others that... Um, uh, Richard Swain uh, was, I think, our bo- first board president, that were all very instrumental in putting Youth Town where it is because their reputation were was that they were all families who would help families that needed help. So there would be families that might drive from several counties over with a child that they couldn't feed anymore, and they asked these families to take care of them in their homes, and they did. And then at some point they decided, you know, we really need a place that just does this, and um, I'm not even clear on how the land all got donated or purchased. Yeah, it's 250 acres. Uh, I hear some stories from time to time from people that do remember, but uh, that that part I'm not as clear on. But I, I am very clear on, as, as Youth Town began, the mission was to help kids that couldn't help themselves or that their families weren't able to help them. So from 1962 until 1998, Youth Town was more of a group home for orphan kids. Mm-hmm. And kids would come out there in the second or third grade and they would stay until they graduated high school. Okay. Uh, there was uh, house parents that would raise their children, their own children, along with the children that they were uh, tending to and caring for. Uh, the school bus would come out and pick them up in the morning and take them to school, uh, public schools, and bring them back in the afternoon. These house parents and their families would take these children on family vacations and holidays and uh, all of that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. So for years, uh, there was 24 kids. There was eight kids in each cottage and uh, about 18 staff. And then in 1998, uh, there was a fairly uh, significant change that took place just with kids who were in positions like that. The, The state wanted them in fewer group homes and in more foster homes. Yeah. Yeah. So they asked Youth Town at that time to consider taking older kids and providing more mental health treatment for those gotcha. kids. Yeah. So that was kind of the first big shift. And at that time, we were you know, all state custody kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we contracted with the state of Tennessee. And we went, in two years' time, we went from 24 kids and 18 staff to 80 kids and 80 staff on that campus. Ooh. And uh, we partnered with the Carl Perkins Center. We partnered with Pathways uh, to form a collaborative that would be a continuum of care for kids that were having behavioral problems, substance abuse problems, and did that until about 2004, which is right around the time that I phased out and went back into private practice. But in 2004, the big change was opening the doors for anybody that wanted to come and narrowing our focus to more substance abuse treatment. So... Uh, at that time, uh, we narrowed and became more of a substance abuse treatment facility 
which we uh, continue to be uh, to this day. So currently we have um, 32 boys' beds. We have 12 girls' beds on two separate campuses. And uh, our, our focus is substance abuse treatment with co-occurring disorders, which just means they have another diagnosis. Uh, could be depression or anxiety, okay. uh, ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder. And occasionally we may take somebody that doesn't have a substance abuse diagnosis mm. that has one of the other diagnoses, but uh, for the most part, it's, it's a combination of those two. And that, that would be the bulk of the kids that we see. So that's an interesting history in adapting to mm-hmm. what is needed. Um, and, and so when you, now I, thinking about what is needed, are you guys seeing a lot of opioid cases coming through? Yeah. I mean, great question, especially this week. I mean, last week here in Jackson, we've had uh, a really big opioid uh, conference that was at uh, Union University uh, last week. And then I participated yesterday in uh, uh, Congressman Kustoff's uh, roundtable, uh, just discussing the opioid crisis. And uh, what I was able to share with them even yesterday was, um, in the, in the, even in the five years that I've been at Youthtown, in, in the first year or so, I would say, you know, the bulk of the kids that we had were cannabis only. That was their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And some of them were experimenting with, you know, pills that they would find with their parents or grandparents. Mm-hmm. But that was not the, the majority. And then we had very few IV drug users. But I would say now the bulk of the kids that we're serving are marijuana and pills mm-hmm. of some sort. And it's not exclusive to opioids. It is. It includes opioids. Mm-hmm. But it's usually whatever they can get their hands on. Sometimes they don't even know what they're taking, but they're yeah. taking them. And then now is we had some that were exper- experimenting with pills. We have many more of them who are exper- experimenting with IV drug use, including mm-hmm. heroin and fentanyl and, and that kind of thing, which is a very dangerous combination. Wow. So is is it is it that the, the youth are trying things that are more dangerous or that you guys are getting funneled the youth that are trying more dangerous? That's a good question. I'm not sure of the answer to. But either um, way, they're there. Yeah, either way, it's there. And, and I think there is probably a, a combination of the two. I, I think there are people who refer to us that maybe are having more confidence in our ability to help kids that have more than just cannabis. But I also think that there's just more that's becoming accessible to kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know that there's been uh, such a dramatic change in the kids that we're able to serve as much as the kids that we are serving are getting into more and more. Mm -hmm. What does a day in the life look like out there because they those kids mm-hmm. are there 24 7 yeah they're they're there 24/7 we don't have house parents anymore so we have direct care staff and uh, what we call coaches that are there and they work shifts so they'll uh, you know work 40 hours a week and come in and work you know seven to eleven or seven to three or three to eleven or eleven to seven um, for a child that comes there uh, they are up around six go to breakfast uh, come back and do hygiene and chores in, in the dorm that they live in uh, each of the kids have their own room. Uh, they may share a bathroom with another child, mm-hmm. but uh, they have a certain amount of privacy and something they can call their own. And uh, go to school at 8 o'clock. We have our own in-house uh, church-related non-public school with the Department of Education. So we have a principal and a principal's assistant and four uh, certified teachers and uh, direct care staff. Probably one of the best disciplined schools in the county because... Uh, the teachers have no more than eight kids in their class at any, any given point in time, mm-hmm. plus a very large direct care staff person that is helping them uh, <laughs> maintain discipline in that classroom. So they're there in school until about one thirty, and then 
Uh, instead of a PE time, we have uh, groups that would include anything from alcohol and drug education groups to group therapy to uh, outdoor adventure-based groups uh, to uh, actual physical education that they, they would uh, have in the afternoons. And they rotate through those in the afternoons. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, they may have two different, a child may have, the same child may have two different groups in the afternoon. And then uh, dinner between five and six and usually an activity that's led by the staff in their building uh, that evening and uh, they're usually in bed by 8.30 or 9 because it's, it's a full day. Yeah. Now, and what are the age groups that you guys are seeing? Well, that we're, we're licensed for 12 to 17. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, with the nature of a substance abuse disorder diagnosis, we don't have as many of those that are as young because it takes a little longer for those consequences to pile up. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, usually, uh, I'd say the bulk of the kids that are there are 15, 16, 17. If a child turns 18 while they're with us, that's okay. Uh, we don't have to dismiss them immediately. Uh, they can stay with us a little after their 18th birthday, but if it's beyond three months, which it rarely is, uh, then we have to get a waiver for that. But the average length of stay is 75 to 80 days. So um, that's a big change from what we were before because yeah. they were there for a decade sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I can remember when we made the, the initial change, the house parents were saying, well, how in the world are we going to help a child that would only stay six to nine months, which is what it was in 98, uh, but now it's 60 to 90 days. Yeah. And is that just, you know, for lack, I mean, I don't know, is this just what insurance or the state will pay for? Yes. Yeah. It's it's insurance driven. And, you know, when we were a facility that contracted with the state of Tennessee, uh, the, the state of Tennessee, when you contract with them they really don't have many places for kids to go mm-hmm. so the length of stay was rarely a question and they pretty much you know paid you by the month uh, but with insurance companies that you have to demonstrate a need for medical necessity and for them to to be there and so we often spend a great deal of our time on the phone with insurance companies reviewing their uh, child's progress and convincing the insurance company that they need to be there longer and the insurance company is trying to convince us that they don't. So uh, it's a little bit of an adversarial relationship, but I understand that. Yeah. So so two questions come to mind from that is, is one, how does someone get to Youth Town then? Uh, they can pick up the phone and call us. Uh, they can find us on the web and, and get our phone number and just give us a call and say, hey, I have someone that's been using drugs and is having some real problem behavior and I'd like for them to be evaluated. And we'll walk you through it from there. Uh, the thing I guess to know is that you know two big criteria are that they've had some attempt at outpatient counseling before they come to us because mm-hmm. uh, we can take them, but the insurance may not pay for it. So the insurance is only going to pay for it if they've at least attempted some version of outpatient counseling or intensive outpatient treatment uh, before they come to us. And the other is that they're not so acute that they need to be in a hospital setting. So if they're actively suicidal, homicidal, psychotic, or they've had sexual predator types of behaviors, then they probably need a full psychiatric evaluation in a hospital setting first. Mm. And then once they stabilize, they may come to us. So length of stay in a hospital setting is only going to be, you know, probably five to seven, ten days at the most. Okay. And then uh, once they, you know, stabilize, they may come to us uh, just to demonstrate they, they're able to have so enough self control and not need uh, kind of a one on one supervision. The the second question that comes up is 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 eighty days enough time? No. 
because <laughs> yeah, a lot of times the kids will ask me, hey, uh, they, because they think that I have all power. They say, <laughs> they say hey, Dr. Pepper, uh, I was thinking that maybe you could help me. I kind of want to get out early. And, and I always tell them, you're really asking the wrong person because if it was up to me, I'd double the time mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be here because uh, all the research indicates the longer, especially the younger someone is, the longer someone is out of that, uh, that drug-using environment, the higher the chances are of them having long-term recovery. So, uh, no, 80, 90 days is, is not near enough. I, I would love to have them six months, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the insurance companies don't see it that way. Yeah, interesting. Now, you mentioned that you guys added females uh, at some point about mm-hmm. three years ago. Right. Uh, and that venture is called Eden. It is. Right. So so that was a big departure, right, from what you guys had done traditionally because it was just males up to that point. Mm, kind of, but no. Uh, in the last, since 2004, 2005 maybe, but prior to that we'd had girls. Oh, okay. So when we were a group home setting, we had... Two cottages of eight kids each that were boys and one cottage that was oh, girls. Okay. And then when we converted to the collaboration with Carl Perkins Center and Pathways, uh, we had uh, we had 24 girls and 24 boys on the same campus. So gotcha. okay. uh, that's precisely why the other campus is 15 miles away uh, from, <laughs> from the boys' campus. So anything you can imagine they might try, they, they tried. Yeah. Uh, but uh, now it's, it's very separate and, and we like it that way. Yeah. Well, and so uh, talk about, you know, what, how do you treat those, are those, do you have to do different things with those populations? Yeah, I mean, I think the term is gender responsive. So we are gender responsive with both boys and the girls. So the, the great opportunity when we had the girls program start was starting from scratch with everything. I mean, the, the environment that the girls live in, mm-hmm. uh, the, the staff, the way that we train the staff. Uh, just really having a clear sense of mission with people that have not worked for youth town generally until they came to work at Eden and launching that program in such a way that we are very intentionally gender responsive. Uh, Stephanie Covington is an author that's done a lot of research around gender responsiveness, particularly with girls and substance abuse uh, addiction. And uh, she, her, her staff came and trained all of our staff uh, at the very beginning on uh, gender responsiveness and addiction. So we, we had a good start with that. And our program director, Paige Bledsoe, has been very faithful to the program fidelity of uh, gender responsive treatment. And uh, so there's, there are a lot of things ranging from just really pretty girly uh, decor in their bedrooms to uh, you know the, the curriculum that we use is evidence-based, but it's a woman's way through the 12 steps. And there are you know things that we look at and zoom in on on what's different for women in recovery, uh, so that's that's fun and exciting. And I think the thing that it also pushes to do is to consider how gender responsive we are with our boys too. Uh, and the thing that may surprise some is that there's been a lot that's been written on gender responsiveness with girls, and you know the fact that it's not a one size fits all. It's it's needs to be different from girls. But not, not as much has been written on boys. And uh, just the um, uh, don't be mean to girls uh, part is uh, <laughs> kind of a part of what's been written for boys. But, you know, a boy's heart is made for adventure. And a boy's heart is made, not that girls don't enjoy adventure, but uh, that's a part of what makes a lot of boys' heart come alive. And uh, fitting things together and uh, activity and 
those kinds of things. So that spilled over into our boys program, but it's been a little more trailblazing than it has been an evidence-based approach that's already been done. Very interesting. Well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about like what is the outcome? What okay. is the goal? So so from, uh, from our front porch to yours, this is our Jackson home. And we're back with the R. Jackson Home Podcast. This week we are joined by Dr. Pepper Pratt. He's the Executive Director of Youth Town, which is down in Pinson, so just a little bit of a hike mm-hmm. uh, down. When you uh, have these kids come in, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming from mostly regional West Tennessee, but maybe a mm-hmm. wider circle, what is the what is that what is your goal what's your what what's the intended outcome of them coming through the youth town program yeah and incidentally we we do have kids from all over the state so you know, i'd say probably 60 percent are from west tennessee um, you know another 20 uh, percent or so are from uh, east tennessee and then or middle middle tennessee and then the rest are from east tennessee okay. and occasionally we'll have somebody from out of state so we have somebody that found us on the web and you know that, that works just as well as is any anybody from tennessee really yeah. but uh, so they come from all over, but uh, outcomes are one of those things that we've really uh, narrowed down and, and begin to begun to name a little more specifically because uh, there are so many ways to measure that, and um, it, with mental health, with um, recovery, it's hard to quantify that sometimes. Uh, but we do the best we, that we can with that. So on a national average. A recovery rate is is surprisingly for some maybe uh, low. Uh, if someone goes to inpatient treatment, their best ex- expected outcome is 18 to 20 percent chance that they're going to remain sober after they they get out. Uh, the numbers that we're tracking so far are much better than that. So we're in the 60 to 70 percent range, um, and we would like to do better than that. Yeah. But uh, we track kids after uh, for a year, so we. Check in on them by phone at three, six, nine, and twelve months, and um, ask them some very basic questions: Are you still in school? Have you, you gotten in trouble with the courts again? Um, have you? Are you still using, or have you? Have you? Are you maintaining sobriety? Is really what we're asking. So, again, those are those are kind of hard to track because we're dependent on those that actually answer the phone and answer honestly and and answer honestly and. We guess that it's probably bad news, not good news, when they don't answer the phone. So if I'm not doing well and Youth Town's calling, I probably don't want to talk to them. No. Okay, no. but uh, you know, the, the, but those are still the the numbers that we have. Yeah. So in an outcomes basis, that's that's what we do check, and you know, a surprising majority of them are doing well. Most of them are still in school. Most of them have not gone gone back into the courts or gone back into treatment. So. Usually less than 15% have had you know, some type of uh, re-entering into the court system or going back into a treatment setting. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, we want them to pick up the tools of recovery, but you know, we're a faith-based organization, so we want to see irreversible life change take place in a kid's life. And to us, what that means is that they have begun to set, take steps in their spiritual journey that... Uh, is, is an introduction to Christ, introduction to Christianity. And uh, to see them take those steps, in some cases, means baptism. And uh, we, have, we see over 100 kids every year that want to follow Christ in baptism. And that's very exciting for us. And um, 
you know, you just never know what kind of seeds are planted in that and, and what their follow through is. Mm-hmm. But I know that you know, another outcome is just the stories that, that we hear. Um, two stories real quick. One, uh, our girl, we, the first batch of girls that we had, we, we named them girl number one, girl number two, <laughs> et cetera. Uh, and this story is not representative of all of them, okay? But girl number one, the first girl that we had in our Eden program, uh, a little over a year later, uh, we got reports back. We knew that she was really bright, uh, but uh, we got reports back that she was still doing really well and uh, has, has maintained sobriety and was uh, clean and sober. She graduated high school. She had made a perfect 36 on her ACT wow. and had been offered a full engineering scholarship to UT Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And uh, as far as I know, she's completing her freshman year, I think, this year. And uh, just an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Uh, another story, though, uh, probably one of the most profound moments of my, my professional career. Uh, November 12th of last year, uh, we had a family that asked if they could come out and plant a tree. And the reason why is their, their daughter, girl number 13, uh, had come uh, to Youth Town, picked up the tools of recovery, had done really well for a couple of months, and um, consequently wound up getting involved in a very negative relationship with a guy. And she, too, was very bright, very smart, and she had decided that she could budget her heroin use. And she relapsed, and when she relapsed and went back to using heroin in her calculated way, the one thing that she wasn't counting on was that she got some heroin that was laced with fentanyl and consequently died uh, as a result of that. So the most prof- one of the most profound moments in my career was when this family came out and planted a tree in her memory on our campus. And uh, just to, to see that family, her friends, uh, the girls who were witnessing this, who were current residents at Eden, uh, just drove home how extremely uh, high stakes the work is that we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remind myself of that almost every day. And intentionally, when I'm at Eden, I regularly walk past that tree and just make sure the leaves are blooming and that it's still good and healthy because it means a lot. Yeah. When you think about the future of Youth Town, which is mm-hmm. a part of your job, what do you think and see and hope for? Yeah, I, you know, the, the thing that breaks my heart is there are so many kids in Tennessee that can't access treatment. They can't access our services uh, because those services cost money. So a big part that's on my plate is, you know, raising the money for that. And uh, we've been blessed to have a few grants that have uh, helped uninsured kids, but you know, I, I, part of the vision that I have for Youthtown is that in some ways, similar to how St. Jude deals with uh, children of cancer, mm-hmm. that there's, there's never a reason that we turn a child or a family away uh, because of finances. And yet it takes finances to keep the lights on and mm-hmm. pay our staff and, and that kind of thing. So we're not there yet, but I think that's, that's a goal that I, I would love to see us. I would love to see us turn the tables on our budget in that we're dependent on the insurance revenue and uh, the fundraising that we do supplements that. What I would love to see us uh, experience is being uh, operating out of our fundraising Mm -hmm. and let the insurance funds supplement uh, that because uh, that gives every child you know the chance to 
complete their treatment without ever having to worry about those utilization review conversations with insurance companies uh, and, uh, and being able to, to really see them get the help that they need over the long haul. So that's a, that's a part of it. There's always facilities that need improvement and, uh, to be built. I mean, we you know, have an immediate need for a clinical building at Eden. They've been working out of a trailer. <laughs> the counselors have been working out of a trailer since we started, and the girls have the best buildings there. Uh, we have a need for, uh, in a gender responsive way, to be able to improve uh, some of our fitness facilities for the boys and uh, really an immediate need because we've had a waiting list on both the boys' campus and the girls' campus since the first of the year. Uh, we can expand our beds on the boys' campus uh, by, uh, by eight uh, with about $30,000 uh, just to add sprinklers to the dorms that already have enough square footage and that would give us eight more beds. So that, that's kind of an immediate need. Long-term, uh, I would love to see us develop a piece that's more of a um, kind of a therapeutic boarding school uh, that would not necessarily be mental health treatment, but it would be more education focused and opportunity for uh, kids from all over the country to be able to come and be there a year at a time. It would be a year long commitment, uh, but to receive uh, the support of counseling services, the support of some of the therapeutic activities that we have, mm-hmm. uh, but also have a focus on getting caught up in their education and in some ways even getting ahead. Mm-hmm. So how can the community get involved with Youth Town? Um, many different ways. There, there are groups sometimes that want to come out and do service projects, and we have an endless supply of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's uh, just a great opportunity for people to be on our campus and kind of see what we do and and do something that really matters. And it can range from pressure washing to uh, landscaping to uh, sometimes interacting with the kids. And uh, we, we have such a wonderful community that, that comes out, especially around the, the holidays. Uh, but it's, you know, a group could come out and just want to do a cookout with kids. And it would be uh, very welcomed. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, people can be involved financially. Uh, we have events throughout the year that uh, are events that put us in the community and get to know them they get to know us Uh, but it's also fundraising too so uh, this coming week we have our annual golf tournament and uh, we have uh, 43 teams that are coming out and that's so exciting and it's a major piece of our fundraising and uh, the community is so faithful to come out to that and uh, mid-south charity horse show is in july we have a barbecue festival in october and a christmas luncheon that's open to the public at, at the end of the year so uh, there's a lot of events that we have, and we're pretty public about those on social media, and, yeah. and we'd love for people to come out. Um, one of the things that sometimes people ask about is, uh, you know, what about mentoring? Can I come out and mentor one of the boys or, or the girls? Uh, and that's not as much of a need as it was when we had kids that stayed there long haul. Yeah. But sometimes, even with that, there are local kids that would love to have a mentor even, you know, after they're they're done. Uh, but I think probably as much as anything else, just um, you know, being at some of the events, uh, coming out and, and seeing the campus, visiting us, see what we do, uh, is a good way for people to get involved. Yeah. Well, Pepper, thank you so much for, for coming and joining us today and, and for helping to make Jackson a, a better place and mm-hmm. choosing to call it home. Well, it's a good home. Today's podcast was hosted by Kevin Alsberger. Our intro music was performed by Aaron Harden. It was recorded live at The Co. To find out more about The Co., visit their website at www.attheco.com. To find out more about our Jackson home and to read more about how amazing Jackson is, visit our Jackson home.